Welcome to Low Orbit. I'm Josh Madison. I was born in Seattle, and my family moved to Denver in 1979 when I was around six years old. So I've seen the city go through many changes. There was an oil bust in the 80s. There was Allen Berg's murder around that same time. And by the way, that one stuck with me so much, I made an entire documentary about it. I'll link to that in the show notes. Anyway, I grew up in a neighborhood called Park Hill, and there was an airport very close to where we lived. And so sometimes the planes would rattle all the windows and glasses in the cabinets as they flew in for a landing. If you were on the phone, you'd have to pause and wait for them to pass over before you could talk again. And the city itself was just sort of stuck in that time period. There wasn't a lot of development. People weren't really moving here in droves. We just sort of existed, a small, landlocked city in the center of the country. But of course, nothing is ever static, so the city began to grow up and change. In the early 1990s, two major things happened. The airport was moved way out of the city. And key to our episode today, these old viaducts that took up a lot of space just west of the city center were torn down. We have two stories about that last change in Denver today. One is personal and one is visual. Let's start with the visual and a photographer who documented this change, Kim Allen. In order to set the story up properly, we're going to have to talk about the geography of Denver. Denver isn't really a hilly city, necessarily, not the main city part of it anyway, but it does kind of slope downhill. At the top of the hill is the Capitol building and then some residential neighborhoods appropriately known as Capitol Hill and Uptown. And then you get to the city center with a handful of tall buildings and all of that. And then the city continues to kind of gently slope down to the bottom of the hill to a historic district now known as Lodo, which means lower downtown. We have really creative place names here. And then there's a bunch of new development, a park, a little river, a highway, and then the city goes back up again to another residential neighborhood called the Highlands. The reason I'm telling you all of this is that the city looked a lot different 30 years ago. The city essentially ended right there at Lodo. Lodo kind of has these old historic brick buildings, the kind you see in a lot of -of turn-of-the-century western cities. And Lodo had this grand and at the time crumbling and underused train station called Union Station. But after that, there was this kind of a no-man's land before the highway. There wasn't really anything there. Well, I shouldn't be so glib. There were some businesses there, warehouses, railroad tracks, and that kind of thing. But no real infrastructure and certainly not much in the way of housing. The reason for that is that there used to be these large viaducts connecting downtown to the highlands. And there wasn't a great way to get around underneath the viaducts, so the land wasn't really being used. It was just this kind of scrubland. And by the time I was old enough to notice it, occasional piles of rubble. That's all filled up now, filled by a baseball stadium and lots of high-rent modern apartment buildings. Union Station is still there, and it still services some trains, But largely, it's a haven for tourists with lots of high-priced eateries and fussy cocktails. You're not even allowed to sit there anymore unless you're buying something. And I I only mention that last part because it feels like Denver is is kind of running away from its own past just about as fast as it can. It, It feels like the history of the city is being erased, 
physically speaking anyway. But here's the thing. There is a record of what used to be there, thanks to a Denver photographer named Kim Allen. Kim ventured out to this no man's land in the 80s and early 90s and recorded what was about to be a massive change. I was lonely. Yeah. I was uh, bored. I would, uh, it was, I found, I, I look, growing up in Denver, uh, went on some excursions, you know, to the Denver Public Library and to the Art Museum, and uh, it, it resonated me with me a little bit. And later on, I, I looked at some uh, uh, photo books, and it, it just it, it fascinated me. And I thought, and it really, I didn't, I wasn't married. Uh, I really just always had these uh, menial jobs, and I just thought I'd uh, go out and cruise around and take pictures of this this area that I could see was going to change. There, there were developers driving around and and beat up Mercedes and this and that and stuff. And I said, follow the money. So you could actually literally walk in the front of it at the Union Station, walk out the back, and there were no, see there were the viaducts that went above the, the fields. And so you could walk all around. There weren't uh, fences, there weren't uh, roads. I mean, you could, so yeah, it was just all desolate. Kim's photos are stark black and white images of a city in transition, a city that hadn't quite recovered from the oil bust of the 1980s. There are these wide composition shots that play with shadows and light. They show the city in the distance, kind of far removed from an abandoned car or burned out building. In one of my favorite pictures, there's graffiti on the concrete posts of one of the viaducts that says, protest against the rising tide of conformity, which seems actually really prescient in retrospect. I met up with Kim at his house to look at some of his photographs and chat about how we took them, what his process was, and what it felt like to wander around under these crumbling structures. Oh, and by the way, the area of town we're talking about, it does have a name. This is the Central Platte Valley, and it was named Central Platte Valley because of the Platte River. So there was a series of viaducts that went along the, the river, the Platte River, the viaducts crossed across there for the railroads, and it was also a floodplain of the potential, or it had flooded before. So it ended up being a perfect spot for the railroads. And the, the streetcars actually went over the viaducts before uh, cars did. You know, things were actually a different world than, than what, you know. Uh, th- things were happening um, that, 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 that I, I didn't know either. You know, you're born into stuff, and you go like, well, everybody drives across the viaducts. Well, there were streetcars before that, and they were powered by the, uh, the um, what is now the REI building mm-hmm. at Platt Street and 15th. So you just heard Kim mention streetcars. That's what these viaducts were for. They were built in the late 1800s and early 1900s to get people from the city center up to the residential area and back. The area was underutilized. Uh, The railroads were there, but only one viaduct could you actually kind of drive underneath and have uh, um, be actually on ground level for pedestrians and autos. So the Wazee Supper Club was on Wazee Street at 15th, and then farther down the road, road at, uh, on Platt Street was my brother's bar. So that was kind of like this old bohemian um, hangout when nobody was really downtown much. Uh, but the viaduct, you could actually drive underneath it. 
And with not many people on the ground below all of these structures, Kim had free reign to explore and capture all he wanted. I decided I was going to document Denver a little bit or take, be able to take some pictures of slices of it that I knew was going to change. So I would go out on, and on my spare time, I bought a lot of film. I would uh, shoot several rolls a day sometimes, or, and I would get uh, sometimes four to eight rolls done and then chemically process them. Um, so when I was out photographing, I was doing research, uh, early research for the marijuana industry. And I was, um, for most of the photographs I took, I was under the influence of marijuana. For when I, when I developed my pictures and I processed them, so I was under the influence of alcohol. But so it was exciting. Okay, so I would take these pictures, I would be out there and I would nail them. I'd be going like, wow, man, I got that picture. So, you know, not sure, but it was so fun to take the pictures. I mean, it was unreal to take these pictures. I was in my own world like it. So then when I processed the stuff, bingo, I was even in a, a, a better world, man. I was like, woo, man. So I took a lot of lousy pictures and I looked at the stuff and said, wow, man. Uh, but I, I, I was able to take uh, some really good ones. Visually, Kim's pictures occupy a space between art and documentary. I, I liked, I gravitated more to, to darker images, actually. Um, and uh, even from inside of a building, maybe, of getting shadows from inside and looking out. Um, I, I tried to be artistic, you know, uh, within reason, but I didn't want to go out and um, just, like, take all these uh, too wild of, or uh, like I was trying to be an artist. <laughs> like, you know, like, I was just trying to, I was trying to take great pictures that were already there, you know, just compose them. So there are snapshots in a sense, but they were really good snapshots, you know? So I thought these were very important. And uh, I, as I went along, I found some photos that were just more, you know, more funky. Now they're harder to sell. I mean, look at that picture. It looks like a, a, a war scene. The picture we're looking at is divided into thirds. There's some graffiti on the wall on the left. There's a pile of rubble in the middle. And then on the right, you've got some construction stuff with some negative space there. This is Coors, the beginning, the very first uh, construction pieces of Coors Field. So this is actually the 23rd Street Viaduct. They've torn down the 20th. And I mean, look, look at it. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. In, in, a lot, in many of my, well, some pictures, there's, there's a negative, there's an area that's kind of maybe uh, that doesn't have as much action going on in it. And it's just, uh, you know, I'd love to have a, a bird flying through a spot there or an eagle or, a, I don't know, some, some, something, you know, in all these pictures. Uh, uh, and I just couldn't. And so I tried to compose as much as I could, you know, so I have the graffiti there atop the, the heavy girders of the, the viaduct and down below, and people have been camping out there. All this rubbish, you know? It's a gray, funky day. You got the sun shining up here in this corner. This area is a little bit open. It's like, I don't know. I, I don't know what I could, you know, I did my best. So Kim could sniff out that the area was changing, and he was right. Because here's the thing about this area. Underneath these old viaducts, so badly in need of repairs, was land. Lots of empty land. And in a city, that's like sitting on a gold mine. 
it, it's all about square footage. You know, a, yeah. a building eventually. There's uh, so many great buildings that have been torn down. It's just uh, the square footage, the cost, uh, the value of it is too much, and the people at the time decide not to re reuse it. Yeah. And it's just a, it's part of the evolution of uh, the city. It's it's really complex. It, not everything can, can be saved. You know, when I started taking the picture, pictures, I thought they could. You know, I was a big historic Denver guy, and that, and uh, and I believe that. But it, it's it's really difficult. And bottom line, it, it comes down uh, basically to to the vision for the future. Somebody else is is looking to capitalize on it. You know, to a new development. They have investors. It, it investment it's a it's a it's a complex thing all this stuff and denver's gotten to be bigger and uh, things get involved with all kinds of uh growth and arts and uh and it just gets real complex it's very competitive when the viaducts came down it made perfect sense to develop that land after all there's nothing wrong with providing more space for people to live and use but like elsewhere in Denver, the people who helped make the city what it is today got overlooked and pushed aside. It's a complex legacy. There's too much investment, and I was for all this development. I was, I wanted, that's why all of us, whether you're a, a, a sculptor or a, a pottery or a painter, we wanted to take from our mind into their home. We're trying to help them to just be a part of the story, you know? And it's really hard to get into these places when people don't value your story. Yeah, they don't, it's not part of their, they're like, you know, uh, we don't need you guys. We don't need, so what if you spent 30 years, you know, photographing or being a painter or, you know, we were already invested in the community. We were already doing it. We, I have pictures of buildings, I have businesses. There's painters and other uh, drawers that have, that their artwork involves buildings. It involves the community. And instead of being embraced, they're just kind of like, I don't want to deal with any of these artists. They're probably, they're, too, they're weird, and they're probably too expensive. And you know, we don't have time to cull through all their stuff. And we don't want to be dicking with all their stuff, you know? And they're talking, they're going to have to, you know, we just put up some minimal stuff, keep it, dumbed down it's real it's real estate man that's that's the ugly part of it man there's some there's it's just messy we've tried we we tried our best and i'm a pretty weird guy and i took some pretty weird pictures artists are just man we're we're messy just like we're, we're, we just have this little spark of some part of maybe a little genius or a creativity of something that's really good it doesn't mean anything else Kim Allen was born in 1955 in Denver at Presbyterian Hospital and has spent over 30 years documenting the changing scenery in Denver. You can find his work online at buck50.org in three posts, which I will link to in the show notes. Kim says, My work is only possible thanks to former webmaster Janet James, fine art printer Ron Landucci, and my wife Candace Connolly. 
And so we move away from the visual change in Denver to the personal with this next story from writer Ellen Graham. Summer of 1987, the wood between the worlds. Miserable middle school behind me, terrifying high school in front of me. I had recently dyed my hair black and and bought my first punk record, Die, Die, My Darling by the Misfits. I was perplexed by its ponderous beat and slow, somber vocals until a friend advised me I'd been playing the record at the wrong speed. I was uncertain, incomplete, appallingly tall and fatally conspicuous. During the last week of summer vacation, a friend, a cool in-the-know friend, told me, in passing, you know, there's a rumor going around that you called Parisa Andesha a poser. Parisa Andesha was an upperclassman, Persian, with naturally dead white skin and jet black hair and a downy black mustache. She was brilliant and unsmiling, and according to school mythology, her room and her parents' comfortable post-war split level was devoid of furniture and the walls were covered with writing, song lyrics, poetry, from baseboards to ceiling. Parisa Andesha cast a black shadow over the incoming freshman class like a teenage Kaiser Soze. So, let's be clear on one point. I did not call Parisa Andesha a poser. I asked my friend what I could do about this rumor. He shrugged, perennially cool, and said, I don't know, just offer a cigarette or something. This stratagem would have worked for my cool friend but I had not yet mastered smoking and its complex tribal customs. I had not even mastered faking smoking. I knew I was in trouble. John Hughes got a lot right, but he was utterly wrong on one point. A person like me had much less to fear from the jocks and the preps than I did from the Brahmins of the punk rock caste system at Thomas Jefferson High School. So it was, on the first day of school, I stepped up under the conveyor belt, closed my eyes, and was born into the abattoir. The punishment started almost immediately. Enter the foot soldiers, the two Mikes, Alpha and Beta, both tallish and stocky with the broad bony foreheads of loyal Labrador retrievers, the Alpha black-haired, the Beta golden. They wore army fatigues and combat boots and tight leather collars. The Alpha Mike had a girlfriend, small and foxy, with a triangular head and a plume of reddish hair. The two Mikes and the girlfriend became my designated abusers. They followed me on my eternal walks home from school at a distance of about half a block, the Alpha Mike screaming his speculations about my personal life, and the Beta Mike and the girlfriend chiming in with punctuation, embellishments, laughter. At night I would lie in bed and try to parse apart these furious puzzles, Many of them were sexual in nature, which made them particularly confounding, as this was another language I did not speak. The words jangled in my head, sleeping, waking. I forgot my original sin, or whether I had sinned at all, and set about making myself as small as possible. This went on for weeks into months. I confided in no one, except for the daily journal we were forced to keep for English class. 
I thought this was just busy work and the teacher wouldn't actually read the entries, but one day, boozy Miss Hayes with her hennaed hair and her thermos full of medicinals laid her hand on my arm and asked me, How are you doing? in such a way that I knew that she knew. I was mortified and feared the repercussions for violating the code of silence. I'm fine, I said. One day as I left the building for lunch, I heard the usual flow of invective begin. But it was a different voice. A reedy, feminine voice threatening to kick my ass. Although this was the first time I'd been threatened with physical violence, the voice lacked the gravitas of the alpha mics. And I was curious. I turned around to face it. It was Parisa's number one hype man, a spindly girl named, I think, Brie? Or Bryn? Something. Parisa hovered on the periphery, a steady black stare from under the crisp battlement of her black hair. I asked them, What did I do? Brie said, You know what you did. I said, I never called Parisa a poser. There was a pause. I unwisely added, Besides, why would I do that knowing she has friends like you who would beat me up? Bree said sharply, Don't kiss ass. The exchange dribbled on in a manner embarrassing to both parties before petering out. Its effect seemed inconclusive. But that day when I left the building, the mics were not there. The lapse was menacing at first. I feared they were getting ready to unveil some devastating new tactic, but nothing happened. Time passed. In the meantime, I made my high school theater debut in the role of an elderly matron who was murdered on stage during the first act. Cause of death, blunt force trauma. After my death, I was stuffed into a closet with several other corpses, and at the climax of the show, the closet door burst open, and we all collapsed out right at the feet of a bewildered police inspector. Was this a terrible omen of things to come in second semester? But Christmas vacation came and went, and still the mics were nowhere to be found. It was over, apparently. A few months later, I was stage managing the spring dance concert, which featured a number of girls, including the Alpha Mike's girlfriend, wearing neckerchiefs and leaping around on hobby horses to the tune of Appalachian Spring. As I rushed around backstage with my clipboard, the Alpha Mike appeared. His face was somber. As he approached, I felt the familiar jolt of fear. I'm sorry, he said. It wasn't true. I believe you now. He held out his massive hand. I had no choice but to shake it. If there's ever anything I can do for you, you let me know. I nodded. He made a dignified exit through a scrum of curious girls and leotards. After that, I saw him around school now and then. He would nod at me, grave and knowing, like we were the sole survivors of a terrible accident. When we shook hands at the dance concert, he had promised to be my protector, but I never needed one after that. I realized on some reptile level that, to put it in 21st century parlance, it had been hazing rather than bullying that I had experienced. I had passed the test. Parisa either graduated or moved away. It's funny to me that I can't remember. I can't even remember whether I ever actually heard her speak. But I do remember that on the first day of my sophomore year, I sat on the front steps of the high school in my new position of power, 
coldly surveying the incoming freshmen for new recruits. A year or two later, the two Mikes were out for some recreational breaking and entering in a then-derelict neighborhood that now features wine bars and million-dollar condos. The owner of one particular warehouse had apparently been a victim of such break-ins before because he had rigged an elaborate booby trap that would trigger a gun if the window were broken. The Mikes broke the window. The gun fired and the Alpha Mike was shot and killed. I went to the viewing. I had seen an open casket before, but I had never seen a young person dead. The girlfriend stood at the top of the casket, cradling his head in her small hands, his army jacket hanging off her tiny body. She kissed the broad, bony forehead. The bullet hole had been expertly repaired, like a nail hole scraped and spackled and covered with a fresh coat of paint. He was a good man, a good boy, the Alpha Mike. I touched his cold hands, folded against his Sunday suit. The Make My Day law had recently gone into effect in Colorado. A lot of people wrote letters to the paper in support of the warehouse owner and his right to defend his property. Eventually, the story disappeared. Later, I heard the girlfriend was now with the beta mic, but she still wore the old army jacket. Over the rest of my high school career, I mastered smoking, faking smoking, coffee, chess. I went to all-ages shows and hung out at Paris and Muddy's and the Merck and bought books and underlined striking passages and filled the pages with excruciating marginalia. I was cast in exactly one more play, once again as an elderly matron who was murdered on stage during the first act. This time, I was strangled. I decided to give up acting. We were young. We were becoming. We had our own currency, codes, and protocols. We enforced our laws and exacted our discipline. 25 years ago, there were no condos in Lodo, and the only trains you saw in Denver were real ones, rough and unbeautiful, passing through on their way to somewhere else. Ellen K. Graham writes plays, screenplays, and narrative fiction. Her work has been produced in Chicago, Columbus, New York City, and in her hometown of Denver, where she has worked with many companies, including Buntport, Antoto 2, Benchmark, Pandemic Collective, Paragon, and the Denver Center. She is the founder of Feral Assembly, a resident playwright and programming curator at Theater 29 Denver, a co-founder of Shocking Beyond Belief Films, and a member of the Dramatist Guild of America. To learn more about Ellen and her work, please visit feralassembly.com. And that brings the whole thing to a close for today. If you have a thing you want to do here at this old program, you can reach us in all the usual places on the internet, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and good old email at denverorbit at gmail.com. We'll have links to all of that in the show notes. And we'll have a new episode 
in just a couple of weeks.